Right. Um, the, the verse I'm going to read is from uh, Luke. Luke chapter 24, or well, the passage I should say. Luke 24, verses 13 to 21. Well, this is kind of um, a passage, not really speaking on this passage, if you will. It's just like something to set us on our way. It's like a starting point, you know, for what we're going to think about. So, here we go. It's a familiar passage. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Thanks, Julie. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And it's that last, um, that last verse, that kind of, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And this is like, if you read this passage, it's like a, a story of disappointment, of failure. It's like Jesus, we, th- we thought you were going to be the one. You were a prophet. You were a leader. You were going to give us um, relief from this Roman oppression. You know, this was a time when the Romans were um, in sort of occupy, uh, occupying the land. Uh, probably quite a harsh rule, I would imagine. And I think the people at the time thought Jesus was going to be the man that was going to get, get rid of the Romans for them uh, and give them some relief. And when Jesus, when Jesus dies, it's like the end, the end of hope. I suppose in a way, when I was thinking about this, I thought it might be a little bit similar to uh, Dunkirk. You know, when, when the, the Germans were in France, were occupying France and the, the harsh oppression and the rule there. And for the French people to see all the Allies being pushed all the way to Dunkirk and then away they go on the ships and that's it, hope is gone. So that's kind of like the, the, the story, if you will, as these men see it, as they're walking along and discussing together, they're downcast and it's, it's, it's awful. But, I mean, obviously we know the big story, but even before Jesus reveals himself to them, I think there were some clues, really, in what had happened uh, in Jerusalem, that this wasn't just a rebel, a revolutionary dying. This wasn't just the end of the story. There were some clues. Um, I'm just going to have a look at a few of them now. The first couple of clues we get are in Matthew 27, um, verse 51.
thought I'd got all my verses ready. And it says, at that moment, the moment when Jesus died, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is not something that just happens like uh, for no reason, is it? Or like every week. This curtain was about four inches thick. It was something that was made out of really strong material in, in, in line with God's requirements from the Old Testament. It was a really thick curtain. Of course, we know the significance of it being split from top to bottom. It opened up the way into the Holy of Holies for us to enter into a close relationship with God. But just the fact that this had happened, this massive curtain, four inches thick, had been ripped in half by nobody. It's a bit mysterious. Also, in the same verse, it says, the earth shook and the rocks split. In other words, there was an earthquake. I've only ever been in one earthquake, and one's enough. I was in Romania, and I was there, and there was an earthquake, and I was walking along, and the ground was shaking, and it was like, whoa, what's going on? I mean, I was excited, I wasn't scared. It was like, whoa. But earthquakes don't happen every day, do they? But when Jesus died... The earth shook and the rocks split. Amazing. Also, another thing that happened that gives a slight indication that things were not as as seems, we read about in Matthew 27. Um, Sorry, (laughs) same chapter. Matthew 27, yeah. And this time it's verse 52 and it says... The tombs broke open. This is when Jesus dies. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. So Jesus dies and loads of people get raised to life. Come out of the tombs. This is amazing. And it goes on to say that they actually... um, they came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people that's just I think that's just to kind of say look they came out of the tombs and they stayed out they didn't just pop their heads out and say what's going on right back we go these people were raised to life when Jesus died wow also it says in Luke 23 when Jesus died it was now about the sixth hour And darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. The sun stopped shining. I don't know how that happened. I don't know what it was. But this was some major event that the sun actually stopped shining for three hours. Last of all, a little clue. In Mark 15, uh, verse 39, it says, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is a Roman centurion. This is not some wimp. Uh, This is a tough man who's in charge of a hundred soldiers. He's probably been through battles. He's probably executed other people, criminals. He's seen people die. This is a man who has his own religion or Roman gods. But something about what happened caused him to say, surely this man was the son of God. These were clues, weren't they, that 
that this wasn't just some uh, rebel or revolutionary dying. It wasn't just the end of a sad story of hope that was kind of gone. Of course, we know different, don't we, now? We know what happened at Calvary. We know it was Jesus dying. We know that it was the God of the universe dying in our small world. And when we, when we sang that song, which I didn't, I didn't know what the words were going to be, that song about our God is a great big God, and it said he, he's wider than the universe. And I thought I'd have a look at this. You can Google things now, can't you? It's a verb now, isn't it? I'm going to Google it. Put it into Google, size of the universe. Yeah, and it says the universe, uh, I think from, probably from where we are, the radius is about 10... Um, well, let me get this right. 10 billion light years. So working that out in my mind, I thought, well, if the radius is 10 billion, that means that the whole width of it is about 20 billion light years. And I thought, well, what's a light year? Well, a light year is a, roughly about 6 trillion miles. So if you've got 1,000 miles, 1,000 of them is a million, 1,000 of them is a billion, and 1,000 billion is a trillion. About 6 trillion miles is one light year. And we're saying the universe is 20 billion light years. It's a long way. Take a long time to walk it, won't it? It's unbelievable. The God who made this whole universe, who's in charge of this whole universe, this is a God who, in Jesus, came to this world, our small little speck of a world, and died. We know, don't we, that Jesus dying on the cross was God revolutionising, is that the right word? Our world. Absolutely turning our world upside down. Providing forgiveness for our sin if we accept his gift of forgiveness and opening up the way back to God. The Old and the New Testaments both look to the cross. I think the Old Testament is looking forward to the time when Jesus dies. And we in the New Testament are looking back, remembering what Jesus did. It's like, it's like the focal point in history. It's the single most important event ever. Nothing compares to it, nothing. There's some important things happening in the world. You know, I don't know when the wheel was invented. Perhaps it was some uh, hairy caveman who had to push some, move some rocks and he realised that the round-shaped ones kind of were easier to move than the square ones. And he might have thought, oh, there's something in this. I don't know. When was the wheel invented? When did we discover penicillin? The first man landed on the moon. Somebody cracking the DNA code. Barack Obama being the first black American president. There's important things happened in the world, but nothing Nothing compares with Jesus dying and radically changing our world by his death. So, how should this affect our lives? How should being a Christian affect us? Is it about going to church on Sunday? Certainly not. Is it another hobby? You know, I play squash on a Tuesday, badminton on a Thursday, I go for a walk with wife on a Friday, go to church on Sunday. It's another hobby. Of course not. In light of what the event was and what Jesus did, 
Us being a Christian is all about there being a revolution in us. It's about the God of the universe living inside us, empowering us and changing us. It's about God and us being in relationship. Wow, me and you in relationship with God, the God of the universe. Wow. It's about us being radically different. I want to just quickly look at three, three ways in which we Christians are radically different from other people. First of all, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, I'll just read uh, from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You know, I think that the, the world's focus, the focus of the world is so much on money and things. The house you've got, how many bedrooms, how many toilets in, in your house. You might have a nice house, but have you got a conservatory yet? Your car, how big's your car, how powerful, how new. Your clothes, have you got the latest glad rags and designer labels and all the rest of it? I can't talk, I've got fat face trousers on, I love fat face. But you know, have you got all the, have you got all the latest gear? How much money have you got to buy all these stuff? Or how much, just, how much money have you got in the bank? It's so important. I will confess to a, a, a small indulgence in that I've got Sky Sports. I've got the Sky Sports channels. But on Sky Sports channels, every time there's an advert, it comes on Skybet. It's advertising Skybet and it says, it matters more when there's money on it. I'm thinking like, no it doesn't. It's a great game of football, I'm enjoying it. It's not all about money. But for the world... So much of the focus is on money and stuff. Adverts on the telly tell us we need more and we need better. Our focus as Christians is elsewhere. Our focus is not on these things. Our focus is on living for God and loving people with his love. We can have a nice car. We can have... A a nice car, nice clothes. I can have Sky Sports. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with us, you know, working hard, saving up our money, buying nice things. But that's not where our focus is. We're, our focus is not on material things. We, we see people, don't we, in the world who invest in heaven, like this verse says, storing up treasure in heaven. The obvious people to think about are people like Mother Teresa. Who, who, who just didn't think about stuff she wanted for herself. Missionaries who go off to other lands and don't worry about getting material things. People that go and live for others. And, and, and that might seem a little bit like, wow, these people that do these amazing things. But it also it can be us. We can live our lives in such a way that we invest in heaven and we invest treasure in heaven. 
Where does all our money go? Does all our money go on stuff we want? Stuff we, you know, clothes, whatever. Do we think about investing our money in, in the work of God? Things like this, this work that Peter and Donna are getting involved in, in in India. There's other things. Christian Blind Mission, Tear Fund. Things where we can invest our money into loving people. And it doesn't have to just be about our money. What about the way... We live our lives, our everyday actions, um, and the way we can invest in people and in loving them. Sometimes in a way that's costly to us, in time and effort. But this is where our focus is. Secondly, if I can just read from Matthew chapter 5, this time from verses 43... To 46. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? This talks about us loving our enemies. We often see uh, the world's approach as being one of kind of hatred to enemies. Love your, you know, love your friends, but hate your enemies. This verse in Matthew is taken from uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18. You, you look down at the bottom and it gives you a little reference back to Leviticus. And I sort of thought, okay, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament and find a verse that says, love your neighbours and hate your enemies. And Jesus changed all that. In actual fact, that's not how it was. There's a verse in the Old Testament in Leviticus and it just says, love your, um, love your neighbour. But philosophers around the time, perhaps the days before Jesus, had kind of added to this. They'd, they'd put the and hate your enemies bit in. It was only the love your neighbours bit that came from the Bible and they put in the love your neighbours, hate your enemies. But in any case, this had become accepted. It was the way people thought. Love your neighbours, hate your enemies. Jesus' words were a shock to the system then. And they're a shock to the system now. And we will truly be a puzzle to the world and to the people in the world. They'll wonder what's going on if we love our enemies. Well, how does this work? This this loving your enemies uh, business. Well, looking at uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 35, it says... But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So basically this is saying that we need to love everybody with God's love, and in the way that he loves us. And again, another little verse from Romans chapter 5, verse 8 In Romans 5 verse 8 it says But God demonstrates his own love for us in this While we were still sinners Christ died for us 
So you could say while we were still sinners, in a way we were still, well, enemies of God, weren't we? I mean, we certainly weren't God's sort of uh, friends and his sons and daughters like we are now. We weren't in that close relationship with him. But you know what? God saw past that and God saw the bigger picture of what could be and who we could be and he loved us even when we were still his enemies. We as Christians, we live in the knowledge of that love and that grace that God has shown to us. So we extend the same love to our enemies. We see past the immediate things that might stop us loving people. We see past those things to love people. And you know what? It's not always big issues. It doesn't have to be someone that's uh, sending hate mail to you, someone that's throwing bricks through your window every night. It doesn't have to be big, big things like that. Sometimes it can just be someone who's, you know what? They're bugging you. They're really annoying you. Someone you're having to work with. Someone you're having to deal with. And they're just winding you up. But you know what? We can love them. It's not always easy. Or is it ever easy? I don't know. But my word, it's powerful. When we love people, we love our enemies with the love that God gives us. So that's the second way that our lives can be a a puzzle because of what's happened to us. Thirdly, and lastly, in Matthew chapter 18 uh, and verse 21, it says this. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, it seems that there perhaps wasn't a lot of forgiveness around um, in Jesus' day. I don't know. Um, and I think today is, is a similar situation. We see revenge, don't we? We see revenge getting even. Uh, an us and them culture. Um, I think on some of the some of the soul propers, I mean, I don't really watch the soul propers, but I get the impression you see this kind of grim, you know, he's done this, so I'll do that. He's done this to me, I'll do that to, to him. You know, you hear, oh, I'll never forgive him till the day I die. Now, Peter, back in Jesus' uh, day, thought he was going a bit out on a limb and being a bit extreme by saying, Lord, shall I forgive this guy seven times? I think perhaps expecting to get a pat on the back. Jesus would have absolutely blown him away by saying, no, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. This was like a number bigger than that you even needed to think about. It was basically just Jesus saying, look, forgive him and keep forgiving him. We today, as God's people, as people who have uh, experienced God and live in relationship with God, we should blow people away, blow people away with our forgiveness. Now, there's a picture, uh, Marilyn, if we could have the picture up, that I think will probably be familiar to you. Have you seen this picture? This is a picture of a, uh, a young girl called Fan Kim. 
And this picture was taken back in 1972, and it's, it's in the Vietnam, the Vietnam War. And this girl in the centre there was about nine, I think she was about nine years old. And what happened was that the Americans launched uh, an airstrike and they dropped this napalm, you know the napalm, this horrible explosive burning stuff. And these people were in the village, they came running out. This little girl had clothes on, but they were just burnt off her by this napalm and all her back and her arm was burnt horribly. She was in hospital for about 14 months and had 17 operations uh, and she went through years of horrendous physical pain um, and emotional pain. We can't imagine, can we, the the mental, uh, what this must have done to this young girl. Um... If we can put the second picture on, please, Marilyn. This is this lady when she's grown up with a baby. You can see all the horrible scarring still on her arm and her back. But this lady, Fan Kim, became a Christian. And she tells in interviews about how God healed her heart, how God mended all the hurt and and, and damage that, that had gone on inside her. And you know, a few years ago I was watching a TV programme and this lady was on this TV programme and she met this bloke called John Plummer. And John Plummer was one of the American military guys who'd actually planned this, um, this air raid, this attack, when this napalm had been dropped. He wasn't in the planes himself, but he'd planned this raid in which this horrendous thing happened to this girl. And to see this guy on this telly he was, he was distraught. He was, he was um, obviously, he let, he, he'd, for years, he lived with this guilt and this horrible, this horrible guilt about what happened that he'd been involved in with this girl. And um, in this program, he met her and he asked her for forgiveness. And I'm filling up, I'm just now talking about it because it's one of the most amazing things. She said, yeah, I forgive you. And to see the, the relief and the release that this man knew, it was just unbelievable to be freed from this guilt that he'd carried around. And it was just a wonderful thing that this lady was able to do. Now, it's not, that, that was a, a big, big thing. It's not always about the big things, is it? Sometimes it's about little things that happen to us, little things in our life. And I believe that we, as Christians, can, can forgive people quickly and completely. In Matthew 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, it says, Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. And I, I believe that this applies to forgiveness. We Christians live, you could say, in a state of forgiveness. We are forgiven by God And we know the wonderful gift that this is. And our forgiven lives overflow with forgiveness to others in word and deed. Forgiveness is one of the most, I just think it's one of the most beautiful things that happens. And you know what? There's another thing. I mean, there's another little extra bonus. When we forgive people, of course, we release them, but we also release ourselves, don't we? We don't have to carry around all that bitterness and... Uh, I'm going to get you before long. We, we, we can let go of all that and it's just fantastic. 
So just in closing, just just to summarise, Jesus' death on Calvary was for us. It was massive. It was a massive thing that happened. It's the most important thing that's ever happened in the whole world. It changed the world. When we enter into a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, his son, we should expect our lives to be radically different then because of this. And we just looked at three ways in which this can happen. The focus of our lives, our treasure, the love we show to our friends and to our enemies, and the forgiveness that flows out of our lives. And you know what? I think because of these things that happen and because of these things that, that are, I'd like to think we're a bit of a mystery and perhaps even a bit of a puzzle to the world, a bit of a puzzle to the people in the world. And you know what? Who knows? They might even ask us. They might even want to know what our secret is and we'll be able to tell them. Amen.